Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Uh, esteemed guests, members, and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming to the stage Professor Christopher Sagers. Thank, thank you, everyone, so much for having me. Um, uh, thank you, especially to Dan and to the City Club. Um, it's uh, you know I've been, lived in Cleveland for a long time, and it's um, it's uh, quite something to uh, actually speak here. Uh, this has happened uh, to me precisely once in 17 years, and it's very exciting that this is my uh, first and uh, in, a, in a perfect world, not my last time. I'll, I'll tell you, um, uh, just before this, Dan, uh, it is a tradition I, I learned that speakers here sign uh, a book, a visitor's guide, um, and not that many pages before uh, I signed, uh, there was a page where Barack o Obama did. Uh, and so it's really a humbling and, and special experience for me uh, to be here. Dan, Dan also mentioned um, that there haven't been a whole lot of antitrust speakers here. Um, <laughs> and it, it appears I, I may be the second. The first was um, Theodore Roosevelt. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm the second most prominent. Um, uh, so anyway, so it's a really a, a special um, uh, privilege and, and honor to be here. I, I also know Dan just a little bit um, socially, as, as I know many of you do, and I'm, I'm proud to know him. And I can tell you that he really does, uh, more than anybody I personally know, uh, believe in the values that he talks about when he stands here. He's, he's a bigger believer in debate and ideas for their own sake than, than probably anyone else I know. Uh, okay, so my topic, as Dan said, uh, in principle, uh, uh, I'm here to talk about a book that is about one case, one antitrust case, and it's even a case from kind of a few years ago now. Uh, it was an antitrust case against the Apple Computer Corporation and several publishing firms for fixing the prices of electronic books. And this case has fascinated me continually for the entire uh, now seven years since it was litigated. Um, but as I'm going to explain, the, the reason it's so fascinating to me, and I, I hope to you as well, is that it's really, uh, the case was really about so much more than just uh, the particular controversy that the government litigated. Um, the case is really about the problems of uh, big tech monopoly and, sorry, uh, big tech monopoly and the, the sort of purported new guild, uh, gilded age that some believe we're living through right now. And really it's about the, the biggest problems of having a competition policy at all. Uh, and I, that's gonna be the, the focus of my, my talk. But what was initially so interesting about the case though, when it first came out, was something more narrow. Um, <clears throat> to most antitrust lawyers, um, and by the way, there, there are some prominent antitrust lawyers in the audience, and I, I know that uh, they may feel differently about uh, some of these things than I do. Uh, but that is just going to make this more interesting, I think. Uh, but to most antitrust lawyers, the case seemed like an easy case. It seemed like kind of a slam dunk. If the government could prove that the defendants did what, they uh, what the government alleged they did, um, the government basically couldn't lose. 
but to much of the rest of the public um, all across the political spectrum. It was not an easy case at all. In fact, it was very troubling. Um, and in a way, the most interesting thing about that was that uh, it was a frustrating or difficult case, um, not just to the left or to the right, but to both of them. People of all different stripes seem to find something uh, disagreeable in the government's decision to sue. Uh, on the left, uh, critics thought that the problem with the suit was that the D DOJ, uh, in bringing this antitrust case, um, was sort of ironically, perhaps self-defeatingly, suing the wrong defendant. The real enemy in the case was the non-party uh, Amazon, the great big online retailer who was not formally a part of the case, but was definitely the elephant in the room. Uh, but the case was also opposed by many, many conservative critics. And from the right, uh, the arguments were different in their terms. But what was really interesting to me is that in their real substance, um, the arguments from the right and the left were actually quite similar. People tended to oppose this case for more or less the same, same re reasons, even though they formulated their ideas in different terms. So the basic point of the book, and what I'm going to try to explain today, is that the Apple case itself was kind of an object lesson in a basic problem in antitrust. And I believe it's a problem that has made American competition policy uh, generally, persistently, fairly disappointing. Specifically, we claim as a people to believe in competition, free enterprise, markets, and all of that. And indeed, some people think that we do that more than perhaps any other people on Earth. But I think when you look at it closely, it turns out that we don't really believe in those things at all. So the point of the book is to make that case, to make the argument that the traditional view that Americans are real believers in free markets actually does not have the support we think it does. Second, to explain why uh, we find it so hard to believe in competition, because I don't, I'm not really here to criticize people for that. I think it's an understandable problem. But then finally, to show why the lack of popular support uh, has made antitrust such a disappointment throughout much of its history. So that's the, that's the, uh, the biggest picture of the book. Um, here's a little bit about the case itself. Uh, I can't do the case justice in the time that I've got. But it's a, it's a very interesting book. In fact, when, uh, I'm sorry, it's a very interesting case. When I, <laughs> pretty interesting book. Um, no, it, uh, the, the case is interesting. In fact, when I, first, um, when I first thought about writing the book and, and I was first talking to publishers about it, uh, I envisioned the book as something more like uh, famous uh, you know, page-turning litigation stories like a civil action. Uh, or Buffalo Creek disaster, or whatever, because it's a really interesting uh, sort of character-driven um, uh, human interest story. Um, but there's so much more to say about it that the book sort of turned into a book about uh, antitrust policy more generally. Um, but anyway, so I'll, I'll briefly talk about the case, and that will set up what, what the real arguments in the book are about. So um, the publishing industry, around the turn of this century, uh, was in difficult circumstances. Uh, basically, everyone agrees. And in, if you ask the publishers, they were in desperate circumstances. Uh, it turns out one of, the, one of the more interesting things I discovered when researching this is that publishers uh, have always believed that. Um, there, there's a famous quote by a famous editor from Simon & Schuster named Mike, Michael Corda. And he said uh, there was a joke at his, at his firm that the second book published on the Gutenberg Press 
was about the death of the public publishing industry. Um, okay, so it turns out they've believed it for a long time, but for what it's worth, they believed that their circumstances were very difficult in the early 2000s, and uh, there, there is no doubt that their, their fears were sincere and they had uh, something to them. And uh, uh, their difficulties uh, followed, at least in part, from trends that we're all familiar with. So even before there was an Amazon, there had been a Borders and a Barnes and Noble, and those were powerful distributors that used their power to force down wholesale prices and make life difficult for publishers. Even before those firms, uh, there had been Walden Books and B. Dalton Booksellers and so on. And so uh, these were long-term trends, hard to blame solely on the internet or on Amazon. But in any case, Amazon came around in the late 1990s and quickly became a very powerful force in book selling. And according to the publishers, Amazon uh, significantly added to their difficulties. One thing uh, that was interesting about the story was that the publishers actually welcomed Amazon in certain ways. And in particular, they welcomed something that Amazon introduced uh, in the early 2000s that would ultimately lead uh, to a lot of fear and outrage amongst the publishers and ultimately would lead to the case that I'm gonna talk about. But initially, it was something the publishers thought might be actually sort of a desirable opportunity for them. And that was the creation of a commercially viable sector in electronic books. So it turns out, People had been trying to make electronic books for kind of a while. Uh, people had been trying to figure out how to make a technology to display books that people would actually want to read, to own and read. And that's more difficult than you might, might guess. The original ebook readers that predated Amazon's Kindle were mostly physically large, hard to hold. Uh, you couldn't really curl up in a, in a nook with this big uh, thing that looked sort of like a laptop, uh, as many of them did, uh, couldn't read it in the bathtub. Um, and moreover, they were unpleasant to read. The, the display technology of the original readers um, looked like the old you know, MS-DOS green computer screens, and they, they were unpleasant to read. So uh, the technology was finally starting to get good in the 2000s, but even then, no one had um, created a reader or sold it that, that people really wanted to buy. And then in 2007, along came, uh, to, to the surprise of essentially everyone, along came Amazon with its new product, the Kindle. Uh, the Kindle was quickly very popular. It was the first really popular uh, ebook reader, uh, and it was the first commercially viable uh, uh, electronic book display. Uh, it would quickly gain a large, uh, market presence, uh, and it would be followed by competitors, but for a long time it was the dominant, um, the dominant alternative. Um, the Kindle succeeded, apparently, uh, for a few different reasons. Um, for one thing, the, the display was good, it was pleasant, the physical device was small, uh, small enough that you could hold it comfortably uh, and lay on your bed or whatever. Uh, another thing that made the Kindle very popular was that it had a very large selection of titles, and the titles uh, were uh, highly varied. Uh, readers prior to the Kindle had often had only uh, limited selections of um, books, which oftentimes were expensive. Um, but the real reason that the Kindle was a, a success, and this is the critical factor that, that makes all this relevant to the, to the story today, 
Um, the real thing that made the Kindle such a success is the price at which Amazon sold its books. So the Kindle itself wasn't necessarily cheap. It was a three-digit price tag. Um, but the books themselves were super cheap, much cheaper than electronic books had been sold before, and much, much cheaper than the hardcover prices uh, of the books when they were sold as new releases. Uh, specifically, when the Kindle was introduced, uh, Amazon promised that a large range of the books it sold, including the most popular ones, the New York Times bestsellers, would be sold at $9.99. Okay, many, many of us were around then and remember the hype. Suddenly there were books at $9.99. That was a number you heard a lot. It was a number that uh, Jeff Bezos doubled down on a lot and uh, uh, made a key focus of marketing the book and it, uh, the product, and it really worked. It spread the Kindle like wildfire. Okay, well, the price of the Kindle, uh, the price of Kindle books anyway, uh, was a surprise to everyone. It was a big surprise to the publishers whose books were going to be sold at this low price. Uh, a very interesting part of the story is, uh, and you might wonder, well, how, how did they not know? How, how could they be surprised by the price at which their products would be sold? Well, it turns out that Bezos negotiated with the publishers, and he was very much directly hands-on in control of this whole process, negotiated with them for a couple of years for electronic rights for their books. And it, it appears that they kind of didn't know what was happening. Like, they, they didn't think that electronic books were going to be a big deal. They didn't put too much thought into it. They did not insist on any control over the retail price. It appears they didn't even insist on any terms concerning the timing at which the books would be introduced. So among other things, Bezos not only sold people books at $9.99, he sold them on the same day that the hard copy new release came out at a price typically uh, north of $30. Uh, and it's just an interesting fact, I'm not sure how necessarily significant it is, but it definitely was interesting to me that the publishers seem to have had no idea that this was coming, and they gave these rights away. Uh, okay, well, anyway, the short, we uh, jumping forward to sort of the shorter version of the facts that ultimately re resulted in litigation, uh, this was a bitter surprise to the publishing industry, and in fact, uh, by all accounts, the publishers had no idea that this 999 policy and Bezos's intent to sell these books on this schedule uh, the publishers had no idea that it was coming until the gala product launch at which Bezos introduced the Kindle. So it was one of those famous, uh, you know, productions uh, familiar from Steve Jobs, who is, who is better known for doing these things, at which Bezos demonstrated the product, uh, uh, showed how it w would work on big screens, and he told the audience, including a number of the, le uh, the leadership of the major publishers, that he was going to sell these books very cheap, uh, he didn't say it in these words, obviously, but he was going to eat their lunch. Uh, the publishing community then went into damage control very quickly. Um, it appears that publishers, by pretty long-standing history, have been a collegial group. That is, they've talked to each other, they've worked together, uh, they've collaborated in various ways. Uh, and indeed, if the facts of the Apple case really were true as the government alleged them, they were pretty comfortable doing things that make antitrust lawyers cringe. <clears throat> so they had uh, always had some history of collaborating with each other, and that kicked into very high gear once the Kindle became uh, reality. Uh, there ensued a period of a couple of years, so the period between 2007 and 2009, in which the six major firms that largely dominate uh, trade publishing in English, that is general interest publishing 
in English, engaged in a series of communications amongst their highest leadership in which they talked about everything. They did it without antitrust lawyers present, uh, and they talked about things that plainly were illegal for them to talk about, and no one seriously disputes that. Uh, and among other things, they undertook a couple of steps to attempt to force Amazon to back away from this very radical position. Um, an interesting side note is that they did a couple of things during that period in which uh, the government surely could have independently sued them for those things, perhaps for criminal antitrust violations. Uh, the most serious was that the publishers, when they first negotiated with Bezos about how this would all go down, and they apparently were giving, given very little thought to the details or uh, the impact it would have on their own future, they agreed with Bezos that their price to him, the, essentially the wholesale package they would give him, would be the same as what had been the traditional wholesale deal that they gave uh, all retailers on hard copy books, which was that they would set uh, a suggested retail price. This is a common practice. We all know the, the, the acronym MSRP or suggested retail price, whatever. They would set uh, effectively an MSRP and they would give the retailer a 50% discount. All right, so uh, routinely hard copy books that would be sold at new release for say $30 would be sold at a wholesale price of around 15. So they gave Bezos the same deal. They said, well, you're gonna sell the electronic version of the same book, here's, here's the same terms. Oh, and by the way, we recognize that it's cheaper for us to produce these books. There's no inventory, there's no paper to buy, there's no trucks to pay for. So we'll give you a discount off of that. We'll give you 20%, all right? So the initial term that all the publishers gave, and to the best of my ability to determine, they did this more or less voluntarily. They said to Bezos, take our standard terms plus 20%. Uh, then, to their shock and horror, Bezos said, okay, I'm gonna actually sell at essentially the wholesale price you gave me. So 9.99 turns out to be roughly the wholesale price, a break even. The publishers, within some months of that bad news, all uh, did away with the 20% discount. Um, there's not exactly hard evidence that they did this, but it, it appears that they did that collect collectively. That is, they talked to each other and raised their wholesale price. Um, I know there are at least a few antitrust lawyers in the room. I know that none of you would really like to have the client that did that, okay? That, that's very clearly illegal. It's the kind of thing that people go to prison for. Um, publishers weren't, weren't prosecuted for that in any case, um, uh, but it's an interesting point. Even more interesting about that little point, and this is the real reason I tell that little side story. Once the case was litigated, once the government sued Apple and the publishers for what they ultimately did, um, a lot of people said, well, it was really important for them to be able to do this because the real bad guy in the room was Amazon. And Amazon wants to be a monopolist, and by selling these books at a low price, what Amazon plainly is doing is it's engaging in what we call price predation, predatory pricing. It's selling its products so low that it's gonna kill all of its competitors and ultimately it'll have the whole market. Uh, interesting fact about that was that um, a lot of the people making that argument were, were, uh, very, uh, were defense lawyers at large law firms and it's, it's, it was kind of astounding to hear them saying that anybody engaged in predatory pricing um, or was being bad for their, their low prices. That's, that's a side story. But the really important thing is 
that allegedly predatory price actually was the price that the publishers gave Bezos. He wasn't selling at below uh, cost. He was selling at the price uh, they picked. And even when he was literally selling uh, at a loss on every, uh, on every book because the publishers raised their, uh, did away with their wholesale discount, it was only because they, they themselves raised it in, in perhaps um, an illegal way. Um, okay, well anyway, so that then uh, set out, uh, when, when that, even that didn't work, when the publishers ra did away with the wholesale discount, effectively raised the wholesale price, put Bezos in a difficult position in which he really was losing money on every single book title uh, at which he was selling at $9.99 or at least most of them. Um, the publishers discovered that he was still not going to be moved. He was doubling down. He continued selling at very low prices, had no interest in changing his view. Um, so what they ultimately did uh, was uh, to do something that a lot of competitors have done at various times in history, and that was they circled the wagons. And they agreed that they wouldn't do business with Amazon anymore, except on terms that they favored specifically higher retail prices. Um, it was at that point, though, that something very fortuitous happened for them, which was uh, another company appeared out of the blue. And it was a big, powerful company that they were very happy to have as a partner, and that was Apple. Um, and again, there's so much more to tell about this story that's so interesting uh, that I just don't have time for, and I, and I wish I could. But to make a long story short, the role that Apple played here was to help the publishers coordinate an agreement that otherwise was simply what we call a horizontal price-fixing conspiracy. As antitrust lawyers say, a naked horizontal price-fixing conspiracy or cartel. So, uh, Apple's role was to help them um, make sure that they were all in it together. In other words, at, none of the publishers could have done what they did unilaterally. No publisher could go to Amazon and say, I'm not gonna sell my books to you anymore unless you raise the price to $14.99. Um, Apple, though, uh, helped them get a little steel in their spine. Um, and the way that Apple was able to do that was, it just so happened that right at that same time, again, this is about 2009, after two years of the publishers sort of floundering, trying to find a way to deal with Amazon. Out of nowhere comes Apple in late 2009. Uh, and it turns out that Apple itself was on the cusp of creating another uh, commercially viable market that many people had tried before and failed, and that was the market for tablet computing. And specifically, Apple had just sort of devised this new thing that we all know now as the iPad. And Apple reached out to the publishers and said, hey, we have been watching your struggles with Amazon. We know that you hate Amazon and its pricing. We have this new device, which we think will be the second viable ebook reader to challenge the one that currently exists. However, we, Apple, also don't want to lose money on these books. So we're not going to sell the books unless you, you allow us to sell them at a higher price than $9.99. Oh, and by the way, we're not going to do that unless you force Amazon also to sell them at the same price we do, right? We're not going to sell any books on the iPad unless you make sure that Amazon is not undercutting us on the same titles. So there followed a breakneck, now sort of legendary few weeks of negotiations in which these folks all coordinated what to most antitrust lawyers looks like a plainly criminal conspiracy. Uh, and they imposed it on Amazon. Um, one very small legal 
technicality here is uh, if you're following along and following some of the technical words, you might have noticed that I said the publisher's engaged in what we call a horizontal price-fixing conspiracy. Horizontal competition means uh, the competition you have with other people selling exactly the same product as you are a competing product to the same customers. Okay, so the publishers are in horizontal competition. They're all selling uh, competing books to the same buyers. Apple is not in that same relationship with them. Apple is what we call, uh, in what we call a vertical relationship with the publishers. It's a distributor. It's a person who uh, sells the books, participates at a different level in the same uh, chain of distribution of a, of a book. So that had a lot of legal significance in the case. We, we nowadays tend to think, at least some people do, that restraints that impact vertical relationships are not as serious. Uh, so some sort of conspiracy, some sort of connivance between Apple and a publisher, for example, would not be taken nearly so seriously as an agreement between two publishers about how they would compete. Okay, but there's a special rule in antitrust that says, but whether you're in a horizontal relationship with somebody or not, if you help them, if you help other people coordinate their own horizontal conspiracy, you're just as liable for it as, as they are. So a phrase that we heard a lot in this case uh, was a technical term that antitrust lawyers like to use called hub and spoke conspiracy. Apple was the hub from which several spokes emanated at the end of each of which was a publisher. And it turns out in, it, Apple could not have better made the case for the government that it was the hub. It, it laid the perfect kind of evidence that uh, plaintiffs and prosecutors used to prove hub and spoke conspiracies. Specifically, a negotiator for Apple would individually go to each publisher uh, and oftentimes in ways that were very easily admissible hearsay, he would, uh, he would assure them that he was also communicating with all the other publishers and at the end of the day, once we've all had our individual agreements with each other, they'll all be identical. All right. So there was, really, there was really not much factual doubt about what the government was alleging here. Um, at the end of the day, the government won its case. So the government prosecuted this uh, as a, an illegal conspiracy under Sherman Act Section 1, uh, uh, challenged under a rule that we call the rule of per se illegality. It's so, so illegal, so horrible that it's, it's illegal per se in its very nature. Uh, and the government won, uh, both at trial, uh, in a trial that went all the way to uh, a judgment by um, a, a federal judge, which in and of itself is a little bit unusual these days, uh, and on appeal. And the Supreme Court denied, uh, declined to hear the case. Um, so that could have been the end of the matter in the ordinary uh, world of antitrust in which a seemingly simple price fix of conspiracy was successfully litigated by a plaintiff, uh, but it wasn't. And that was because all across the spectrum, as I said, all different kinds of people said, this was wrong. This isn't the policy we need. Um, okay, and that's, that in a way is where my book comes in. Um, and this always happens when I talk about the case, uh, about the book, because the case is so interesting. I actually used a whole lot of time talking about the case. So I can, I can kind of only summarize what's left of the arguments. Um, but I will, and I, th I think they're still interesting. And I think you'll see how sort of centrally relevant they are uh, to much bigger issues that we're all talking about now, especially now that uh, uh, Google and um, Facebook and so on, the other allegedly uh, monopolistic big tech firms are so much on our minds. It seemed to me that when I read the various arguments that not only the defendants uh, and their lawyers, but also their supporters in the public more broadly, when I read the arguments that they made saying, 
Sure, this would ordinarily be illegal, but there's some special stuff here. There are special issues here that make this a, a case that we can't just apply these broad absolute rules to. When I heard their arguments, it dawned on me that these arguments seemed familiar. And they were familiar even though the theme of most criticism of the case was that this is a special case. In, in particular, this is a case involving new facts. This is a new economy industry. Uh, there's been a digital, there's been a technological transition. We now have digital distribution of products that have never been distributed that way. Uh, perhaps these are unlike other products. After all, these are books we're talking about. This is literature. This is our tongue. Um, so the arguments were all about how this was very special, but it turned out, as far as I could tell, that the arguments really were quite similar from lots of other cases, and they were similar from uh, arguments that I've been hearing from defendants as long as there's been antitrust. Uh, similar arguments were made in all kinds of cases, including all kinds of products, including many that are very mundane, going all the way back to the origins of the antitrust laws. Uh, it turns out there's never been a defendant that didn't think its market was special. Um, moreover, it seemed to me that this relatively short, finite list of arguments about why the Apple case was special um, mostly weren't very persuasive. That is, they seem initially persuasive. Surely a book is not just like a brick or an a iron pipe or any other commodity that, that we would ordinarily think of as suited for antitrust treatment and, and rough competition. But in fact, the more you think about them, the more that many of them really didn't seem that plausible. And that's basically what the book is about. That's uh, what easily um, half of the book is about. Uh, in fairness, though, that series of arguments, series of arguments that says perhaps there's something special about a given product or a given market or about a change in a given market or what have you, um, some are more persuasive than others. And indeed, some of them are actually quite troubling. And so the structure of the book, much of my thinking about the case has been something like this. There are a series of arguments that defendants have made forever. Indeed, there were some arguments made in the Apple case that I believe were first made in US antitrust litigation in the early 1890s and made by a firm that said its products were so special that they couldn't be subjected to rigorous competition um, arguments just like what we later heard in Apple. And the product in that original case, which was litigated in 1897, 1898, uh, which was so special it couldn't be produced under rigorous price competition, was cast iron sewer pipes. Um, okay, so I, to me, that's the kind of argument that can be made in all kinds of products. It turns out to be about as persuasive in most products as it was in cast iron sewer pipes. Um, but some, some arguments are more, uh, more persuasive. So I work through the book in this series of arguments in what seems to me the sort of increasing order of plausibility. Um, it's inevitable when you start thinking about this, when you start, you know, when, when you're defending antitrust against arguments like this, what you're really doing, at least if you're a person like me, um, is defending markets, defending price competition. The idea, at least if antitrust works as we hope it does, is to force people to compete. And we force people to compete because we think that has some benefits, all right? In other words, antitrust is the mechanism by which we hope that markets can be kept uh, doing the things that we think they're supposed to do. But if you're gonna defend uh, antitrust cases 
uh, on that kind of argument against the view that in fact there must be special circumstances sometimes. You're inevitably going to run into fairly difficult arguments that no one has good answers to, surely no empirically founded uh, certainty about. And you're going to run into very sensitive concerns that we, ha we really ought to take um, seriously. And really, you ultimately find yourself sort of defending capitalism against concerns uh, that have become prominent today and have been prominent uh, many times in the past. Um, and so, for example, there is no question that there are serious losses when price competition is left to do its thing. Uh, losses of various kinds. And losses that we might think are, are really very dear um, and serious, including things like changes in the technology by which we transmit literature. Uh, paper books are dear to many people, so are small bookstores. Um, reading in the tub. Yeah. Um, but also, people lose jobs, people lose investments. Uh, sometimes, technological transition generates lasting unemployment. Sometimes it generates changes in the number of people in the world who will be entrepreneurs and those who will be employees. And these are various serious things. So the ultimate message of the book, and I, I really wish I could delve into all of this more in more detail, but the ultimate message is those are serious concerns and antitrust doesn't have an answer. But the solution as a matter of policy is that allowing firms to end competition isn't the right way to address them. Um, ultimately, what uh, makes more sense, I argue, is that we really actually should let markets do what they do well, uh, and we shouldn't try to address um, the problems that they generate um, with medicine that doesn't work. We shouldn't uh, try to um, solve the problems that markets generate by allowing limitations of competition. That was the message of the defendants in the Apple case. They said price competition under these circumstances it, uh, is damaging values that are dear to Americans and you have to let us end price competition so that we can preserve those things, okay? My suggestion is it doesn't work. We've been trying that for a long time. It's a mess. We regret it. Instead, let's recognize those serious problems and address them with real policies that can actually um, address them. And that's it. Thank you very much. Um, I was waiting to hear who the hero of the story was. I didn't hear one. No white hats, except for the antitrust lawyers. Um, today at the City Club, we're enjoying a forum with Chris Christopher Sagers. He's the James A. Thomas Professor of Law at Cleveland Marshall College of Law at Cleveland State University and the author of United States v. Apple, Competition in America. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club and our staff will work it into the program. Holding the microphone today is uh, Julia Wong. She's our communications and marketing manager. We have the first question. I'm sure that your colleagues have lots of questions. Uh, Professor Sager, thank, thank you so much for um, this eloquent presentation and a great book. Um, considering the fact that Senator Sherman uh, comes from Ohio, um, and uh, he sponsored the first act in 1904, I believe. Can you talk a little bit about the, um, the Sherman Act and its goals back in the 19th century and how does that, if it all pertains to today's digital world and uh, antitrust 100 years later? Yeah, yeah, e excellent question. Thank you very much. Um, 
So uh, 1890, actually, not 1904, um, going way back. Um, what the original uh, progenitors of the Sherman Act, our, our first antitrust law, uh, the first antitrust law in the world, as a matter of fact, the first uh, formal antitrust statute, that is, uh, what they actually intended is, is shrouded in a lot of mystery, notwithstanding a large legislative history surrounding it. Uh, there's a lot of disagreement <clears throat> about what they actually intended. Um, how would they have viewed um, today's world? And would they have thought that their law was adequate to dealing with new technology? I mean, the whole thrust of the book is the law we've got is fine. The, the law we've got is fine. Uh, American antitrust exists, it seems complicated, but it actually boils down to a, a small handful of rules. Um, and I humbly believe that if we just enforce them, uh, we, we actually would be in a lot, lot better shape. Um, One word that you didn't use in your talk at all, which surprised me some, is regulation. Mm. Uh, and I wondered if you could comment at all. Um, you talked about how you, you thought the, the, the solution to the problem of the values that are impacted by price competition is, is, is to adopt policies that'll, that'll protect those values. Mm. But you didn't talk about the, the role of regulatory yeah. bodies, which is pr a fairly major part of our economy today. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so a funny thing about writing this book, another thing that made this case so completely fascinating to me is that it generates a lot of strange bedfellows. And one way, one thing I felt very weird about in talking about it is uh, I always wind up talking like Robert Bork. Um, <laughs> and uh, my response is going to sound kind of Borkian, which is uh, competition is better than regulation. And you may not need the regulation if you can keep markets competitive. Uh, that was, uh, Daron asked, um, what did John Sherman think? Well, Sherman said, and it's one of the oldest defenses of having an antitrust law, is you ought to regulate, even if you're conservative. Sherman was economically conservative. Even if you feel like that, it's better for you to regulate these things before they become monopolies. Because once they are, there's not a lot of uh, alternative except that things that you may not like, like government ownership or government regulation. So um, I, yeah, I mean, the history, like you say, Mark, the, we have a lot of regulation now. We don't really have a lot of economic regulation, though. We used to. In other words, we used to have agencies at the state and federal level making genuine economic decisions, like what's the price going to be, who's going to sell what. Uh, we've done away with that because it um, not everybody agrees, but it seemed like it uh, didn't help the public too much, helped the regulated firms a lot. So that's why I didn't talk about it. I think it's a bad idea. Chris, building on that a little bit, um, I heard recently on the radio in antitrust scholars saying um, one way that antitrust policy has gone wrong mm -hmm. is to focus too much on price and not enough on market power. And, and I wonder when we think about other tech companies, the Googles, the mm -hmm. Facebooks, the ones where we don't pay any money, instead we pay by sacrificing our privacy or our information. I'm wondering what lessons you draw from the Apple case mm. that might apply in those different kinds of cases, those different kinds of markets. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, we're hearing this a lot now. Uh, can antitrust deal with firms that are giving things away for free? And many people say, well, Google can't be bad. They, they've given us uh, a magical thing, um, you know, uh, extraordinary um, technological advancement. And I, I don't disagree at all. I, I think that's true, right? The, the world's been changed. <laughs> Um, I don't actually think it's that difficult to challenge, though, to look at those markets and see how traditional antitrust rules fit, fit pretty simply. Um, I'm not exactly sure I see the relevance of the Apple case, 
but for example, <clears throat> Google has been accused by a lot of people, including our government for a while, uh, the European Union, and others, of um, doing things with its search results to benefit itself. And Google has escaped challenge in this country partly because search is a free service. It's hard, to, it's hard to imagine what is the market, what's the relevant market for search, what is it exactly that Google is hurting anybody by. Um, but you know, it, it seems to me relatively easy to think about um, our relationship with Google not as us buying something at a price, but us selling something to Google at a very low price, which is our, our attention, the value of us as data. A, a running theme, by the way, is uh, in all the big tech conversations is um, does existing antitrust law, like how could this, this old, hoary old law possibly be suited to new technology? But I, I think it is, it is actually pretty easily suited with just a little imagination. Um, sure. Uh, do you think the four is affecting the society in a positive or negative way? I'm sorry, I'm having a little trouble hearing. Do you think the four is Never mind. Oh, that's okay. Please, <laughs> please don't ask go it. Ahead, I'm sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. You're my son's age. Do you think the four so is affecting society in a positive or negative way? The law? The four? The floor. Oh, the big four. The big four. Yeah, oh, complicated. Complicated. So, excellent question. And I'm really glad that you stuck to it and asked it because it's an excellent question. Um, <laughs> right. More power to you. So are the big four, are the big tech monopolies doing society good? They're unquestionably doing society immense good. The technological change associated with uh, the digital transition is like one of the great humanitarian events in human history, it's my belief. It doesn't mean that they're heroes, though, or that we shouldn't have government do something. Uh, Dan said, I didn't hear who the hero was. Uh, but that was very deliberate. Uh, a theme in the book is, looking at competition questions in moral terms is a mistake. Like, they're not morality stories. They're, there may or may not be heroes or villains, but there don't need to be, and you don't need to know who's the good guy or the bad guy to make good policy. So are the big four the bad guy? Emphatically not. <clears throat> do they do things that are perfectly rational for any business to do and to get away with if they can that potentially have socially negative consequences? Of course they do. Good question. Ken. Hi, Chris. Uh, you mentioned that a lot of people tend to think that the real villain here, if there is a villain, is, yep. Am is Amazon. Mm -hmm. I think I'm one of those people. Yep. Um, and you also said that you thought what Amazon was doing was probably predatory pricing. Mm. Um, was any did the government ever go after Amazon yeah. for this? Yeah. Two, two thoughts. I mean, first of all, I didn't say they were probably predatory, and I don't think they were. I don't think. Uh, Predatory pricing can be defined in different ways. Our current law defines it very, very narrowly. Only one specific kind of conduct can be predatory pricing that violates the antitrust law. On that definition, I don't have any suspicion that Amazon was in predation. They were not. <clears throat> the government could never have won a predation claim against Amazon. Um, does that mean that Amazon is the hero or that they didn't do anything wrong? I definitely don't believe that. I think Amazon is a dangerous firm. It's been extremely aggressive. Um, maybe the most dangerous thing about it is I don't think anybody really understands, at least in government right now, nobody understands exactly what Amazon is or what they're doing. Uh, and I'll, I'll just give you a, one fact about that. We think of Amazon as a real big firm. 
And we think of its power being in retail. In fact, uh, manufacturers all over the place plainly view Amazon as the must-have distribution. Like if I can't sell my product on Amazon, I'm sunk. Thing is, in retail overall, if you include all the brick and mortar stores, Amazon has 5% of the, of the market, not a monopolist as traditionally defined. Um, my point there is, I don't think anybody knows exactly what's going on with Amazon, why it, it, it definitely is a must-have distributor. So my thought on Amazon is, it's a serious firm. It's a, it's a firm to take very seriously. It's potentially a threat. I think that while Amazon has done a lot of great good for society, it, it, it also has a lot of potential for real danger that the government has to take seriously. So for example, what somebody has to figure out is, what is it that Amazon's doing that all the manufacturers have to have access to? It's something like online logistics or in-home next day delivery, right? We just haven't figured that out yet. So I don't know if that answers your question exactly. I think you know already, we're, Ken and I are colleagues, that I don't want to look at it like, is Amazon the good guy or the bad guy? It's just not helpful. Hello, I'm Anai McAdams. Um, I'm a sixth grader from Citizens Leadership Academy. Um, is using personal information to customize ads in people's phones against the antitrust laws? Yeah, good question. Um, in and of itself, it's not, definitely not. Excellent question. Could it violate the antitrust laws? Not only do I think it could, I think it, somebody's gonna bring a lawsuit against one of these firms and say the way that, you, you know, it's fine to use data, particularly if people give it to you for willingly, which most of us do. Uh, you might do it in some ways, though, that we don't like. For example, if you try to get all the data and keep any of your competitors from having it, that doesn't seem so good. Yeah, good question. Hi. How are you? My, my name is James. I'm seventh grader from CIS Leadership. Also, as you stated, well, my question is, do you think in the future that Amazon and Apple will come together as two of one of, as two biggest companies in yeah, the world? Yeah, like maybe they'll merge or something. Uh, even our government, even under the current president, I think, would, would probably stop that or would try to figure out a way to do it. So I don't think they will. They do stuff, though. I mean, they, I hear a lot that, uh, you know, if you make this kind of argument and somebody will inevitably say, oh, yeah, but don't you know how much they compete? Um, and the companies themselves, in particular, the big tech companies, love to say, oh, we're, we're engaged in vigorous competition with each other. And uh, to some, in, on some definition, I'm sure that's true. They're, they're bitter at each other, they're vicious, and they try to take whatever they can from each other. Uh, they also collaborate, though, too. Like, when they can and when they think they can get away with it, they collaborate. And a lot of times, that's, uh, that's about the same thing as just merging anyway. I hate to follow these guys, they're so I know. good. Um, earlier you had referenced uh, flipping around the antitrust approach mm -hmm. um, instead of us having to pay for something at a fixed value. Yeah. Um, is anyone pursuing this flipped around yeah, so yet? it's um, I don't know for a fact if anybody's doing it. it um, I think it played a role in a decision of the European Union in the last uh, two years or so. They did in fact fine Google substantially for abusing its uh, search function. Um, allegedly, both our federal government and several state governments are investigating that right now. Nobody knows exactly what they're thinking or what they intend to do, but I, 
surely they're thinking very seriously about how do we turn that into, you know, because the money, everybody now at least understands that the money in Silicon Valley is the data um, in, in one way or another, and that's the nature of their competition. So somebody's trying to figure it out. So to follow up on that, if you could control Congress, what legislative changes would you suggest be made? Uh, yeah, that's, that's excellent. I, I think the, the biggest thing we need, I, a lot of people are talking about reform now. Uh, there are a number of reform proposals, several Democratic presidential campaigns have, candidates have proposed reform statutes. Um, and a lot of the reforms relate to changing the law so that it will be better able to deal with technology. Um, I would have opposed any kind of legislative reform bitterly until, uh, until like the last 10 years, in which it seems like the federal judiciary, which is really the most important force in applying the antitrust laws, has taken a certain view of antitrust that they're not, they're not gonna give up. It's, it's not feasible that uh, the courts are gonna per permit more vigorous antitrust enforcement anytime, um, perhaps for a generation. So I, I've finally just come to believe that maybe we really do need to reform the existing antitrust laws. Um, but I would favor relatively simple changes. For example, I think that our merger law is the most important and underused pieces of our law, uh, but we're not gonna have real merger enforcement unless Congress uh, makes clear that the courts have misunderstood its intent. As a non-lawyer, and just sort of looking at this from a um, sideline, I'm curious, one, the, English, the, the Europeans seem to have a very different attitude toward the uh, big tech companies than the Americans. And from a, at least, you know, when I, as I read the papers, they seem to be finding people, the Googles and Facebook and that kind of, much more readily than we are. And I wonder if you could, um, again, I'm, you know, you know, one-on-one kind no, of that's, question. That's it's a good question. Um, you know, the comparison between yeah. the, the two and which one do you think is more generally successful? Sure. Uh, so funny thing is that um, European antitrust laws, it superficially is actually very similar to American antitrust law. The, the, the law of the European Union that's enforced by the European Commission is loosely modeled on American law. Um, and yet they, they look at the same conduct and find uh, big violations much more readily than we do. Um, this this kind of goes to my answer to um, Dick just a second ago, which is the problem in our law is not how the laws are written, in my humble view. It's uh, the people who are charged with enforcing it either have, they either believe it in it or they don't. Um, and in Europe right now, for better or worse, there's an administrative agency and a judiciary that believe in their competition law more vigorously than we, we do. In other words, they believe in the same rules and they're just applying them more vigorously, vigorously than we are. Um, <clears throat> Our law, uh, perhaps more than in other countries, really is almost exclusively in the hands of our federal judiciary. Because, I mean, we've got these written rules, but they only mean what the courts think they mean. And the courts have interpreted them in a certain way for, for some decades. So, um, yeah, short, short of changing our federal judiciary, um, which, I mean, it poses its own, I mean, do we really wanna think like that, right? Do we wanna politicize our judiciary in that way? But short of changing the judges, we're not changing the law uh, unless Congress acts. So the difference between Europe and, and here is the view of the, our, our judges. 
Um, and do they have a better point of view? I mean, you know, the decisions are complicated. Some of the decisions they're making, I, and they are socking these firms. Google has, Google's into the EU now for like $5 billion um, for antitrust violations. Um, I, I think those are significant and important uh, steps. Sometimes they trouble, trouble even me. Um, but if nothing else, they send a message to those companies that they're being watched and they have to be more careful and that, that could be the healthiest thing and it's what I think we really need. So there's probably no provable predation. Uh, if the pro relevant product market is books generally or even more narrowly e-books specifically, um, it seems like there's um, increased output rather than decreased output and decreased prices rather than increased prices. Is it possible that those are reasons why there's little societal opprobrium attached to the um, Apple case? Okay, so um, in other words, is the reason that people oppose the government suing these people because Apple did something good? But that's a fair question and I get it a lot. It's a good question. Is, is that it though? The general motives for antitrust regulation yeah. are flipped on their head. Well, okay, so not exactly sure I understand, but let me tell you why I don't think they were flipped on their heads. Not when Apple entered. Prices went up by 50% and stayed up for two years. Down 50% down from publishers' prices. Well, okay. So if I understand you correctly, that should have made people love Amazon. And in fact, a lot of people did love Amazon. I mean, it was controversial, right? Like, I said everybody opposed the case, but that's not really true. A lot of people thought, this is great. Amazon's great. I click a button and I get a product tomorrow for a low price. Amazon's great. A lot of people believed in that. Right, so it was good, yeah. Okay, I'm so glad Subud gets the last question. It really is more bafflement. If you could just explain from your opening story mm. about the Kindle, I may have missed the, the arithmetic and understanding how it hurt the publishers, because if the publishers were selling it, if we're, they were getting the same amount of revenue from selling it, and if Kindle was boosting sales yeah. of their books, Yes, it oh, yeah. may have reduced hard copy sales, but how is it financially hurting them? Yeah. I, I kind of missed Brilliant my question that I, I hope we can deal with in a couple of minutes because it's brilliant. And also, it's again just demonstrates the irony of this case that Subodh Chandra just asked me a question that I've also been asked by University of Chicago economists. <laughs> like the, the conservative economic point of view on a case like this is why would a manufacturer ever dislike? a low-priced retailer, that's what you want. You want the retailer who's not eating your lunch by charging high retail prices. But it's very simple. They weren't charging low retail prices on all the books. They were charging low retail prices on one narrow substitute product that was eating the cash cow that these publishers depend on, which is the highly differentiated, highly brand-dependent uh, best-selling new releases that are selling for way, way, way more than their cost, $35 a book. If I can buy that book uh, at $9.99 on the same day that you sell it as a hard copy, not everybody's gonna buy the ebook, but a lot of them will. And the publishers get way, way less of the pie. So that was the issue. And there's, there's sort of a long run problem for the publishers too, and they, they talked about this a lot. It isn't just that I'm gonna lose some money now. 
It's that people might be convinced that maybe it doesn't really make sense to pay this much for books. Retail prices for all the books is going to go down. Wholesale prices for all the books are going to go down. In the worst case scenario, maybe the publishers go away. Maybe Amazon becomes the publisher. So they cared about it a lot. So, thank you. Hold on. Thank you. Today at the City Club, we've had a forum with Christopher Sagers. He's the James A. Thomas Professor of Law at Cleveland Marshall College of Law at Cleveland State University and author of United States v. Apple, Competition in America. Our forum today is the annual Nelson E. Weiss Memorial Forum made possible by a generous endowment gift from McDonald, Hopkins, Burke, and Haber and friends of Nelson Weiss. We appreciate their longstanding support of the City Club and that of the Weiss family as well. Professor Sagers appears as part of our Authors in Conversation series, supported in part by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We're grateful to all the residents of Cuyahoga County for their support through that public grant. And the sale of Professor Sagers' book is provided by a cultural exchange. Our community partners for our forum are the American Constitu Constitution Society for Law and Policy, the Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association, and EDGE Cleveland. We appreciate their support and partnership. And lastly, we welcome guests at tables hosted by Cleveland Marshall College of Law and Dave Nash, as well as students from Citizens Leadership Academy. Support for student participation in City Club forums comes from the Char and Chuck Fowler Family Foundation and the William M. Weiss Foundation, with additional support from donors you'll find listed in our program today. We're happy to have you here. That brings us to the end of our forum. Thank you very much, Professor Sagers. Thank you, members and friends of the City Club, and special thanks to City Club members who make this work possible. To find out more about upcoming forums and how you can support City Club, visit us online at cityclub.org. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.